This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you, as I do with pleasure, live every Sunday evening from 8 to 10 p.m. We have so much to talk about on the program tonight. This show is not just about health. This is also about sex, because I am your friendly neighborhood sexpert as well. Uh, but I also provide you with, uh, oh, that was the cue to put the kids to bed because we do uncover what lies beneath the covers. But we also present, present as much as possible, evidence-informed health information that relates to your love life, your sexuality, and your relationships, too. But do know that this is not a replacement for a visit to your medical doctor for whatever ails you. We have lots to talk about on the program tonight, from sex abuse scandals to casual sex to conversion disorder, and also a great conversation about consensual non-monogamy with Dr. Jeff. And, uh, and lots more. But right now, I want to talk about when you go to your physician. You expect your physician to be well, right? Well, you know what? That's not necessarily the case. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. The CMA recently did a survey of 3,000 physicians across Canada, and it showed that 35% of physicians of all different uh, specialties were self-reported to be unwell. Joining me on the line is Dr. Lawrence Yang. He is head of family practice at Surrey Memorial Hospital in British Columbia. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Yang. What do you make of this study by the Canadian Medical Association? I think it comes at a, at a really opportune time. It's, we're at a point where we're, we're kind of at a, at a our collective consciousness, consciousness is really understanding that, that health professionals need to be well in order to provide wellness. Uh, it's the fact that somebody is actually surveying it and creating policy around that is, is a really hopeful thing for me. It is indeed. And, you know, we expect to go to the physician. We never expect them to call in sick. They turn up whether they're well or not, maybe if they even have a cold or, or maybe they've been up the night before. I've, I've certainly seen that in my career um, where physicians might have the flu and they're still operating. Um, but, you know, all of this, you know, this poor self-care can actually lead to mental health issues, which is, which is what I gather is the main concern, like anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. So what can doctors do to promote self-care? And why is this such a risk to patients? Absolutely. We, we've had every hospital has had within their community um, trainees or even attending physicians who have unfortunately killed themselves. And this often becomes the driving force for starting up wellness activities within, within each, each location. We really have to start earlier, and this recent survey by the CMA really prompts us. Uh, the CMA has created a policy that, uh, that states that the system itself and, resp- and physicians together are responsible for the wellness of all physicians. So we have systems issues that, just like you mentioned earlier, where people are really stretched to the max, and they're not able to really take time for themselves. You know, the awareness of... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say that residents, you know, you hear often residents will complain or they'll quit actually because they've been on call for 24 hours and then they need to be in their office the next day and they, they just can't take it. 
Absolutely. The old culture uh, back in the day where, where physicians hold each other to, to unnatural, unhealthy standards of, of pushing their bodies beyond normal limits, it, there is, logically it cannot produce anything that is sustainable in terms of wellness or, or care. And then we ask our trainees and our physicians to provide wellness guidance to others. If, if we're not well, we really can't make others well. And you know, how are we going to change the culture? It really comes down to, to leadership. It comes down, comes down to physicians really saying, I'm going to change the culture within my, my tiny work group. I'm going, to, I'm going to start to support those around me. I'm going to start listening. I'm, I'm going to draw border, borders and draw boundaries around how many hours I force myself to work. I'm going to start to take care of myself. I'm going to go for those jogs. I'm going to eat healthier. I, I'm going to really look inside myself and see where am I missing uh, balance? How can, I, how can I admit that I'm actually vulnerable to, to health issues myself? So, and yes, so true. I, um, you know, when you go to a doctor or you know of a doctor, and I'm, I'm around doctors all the time because I work with them, but I have to say I don't like to judge, but oftentimes if they have a, a big gut or they're eating really poorly, a heart attack on their plate, or they're, they're not exercising, you can see that, you know, they're consuming too much alcohol at that, at that dinner, mm-hmm. um, you know, that work dinner, it's, you know, you think, how can you, if you don't ascribe to, you know, a healthy mm-hmm. lifestyle, how can you then convey that to your patients? Absolutely. And one of the issues is that our culture doesn't really allow physicians to, to feel comfortable asking for help. Who do, who do you ask for help when you're supposed to be the one who knows all about wellness? If you hold yourself to an unrealistic standard and you can't show vulnerability, how, how can you ask your colleague, hey, I, I need some help. I don't feel well. And let's say that you're a lucky one that does have that. Good for you. But there are some physicians within our system who feel isolated and, and don't feel connected. And they actually have no existing robust structure to, to seek help. Who's going to be the doctor for the doctors? And every site is really behind in, in trying to develop that. We do have some bright spots, but only now in 2019 are we starting to get together and actually talk about this issue. And We've never had a provincial symposium about it. Well, we, we definitely need to have that. And, and it's not probably not just limited to physicians, um, but one in four Canadian physicians report burnout. By the time a physician is burned out, it's almost the point of no return. You know, people are depleted. They're exhausted. They can get shortness of breath, fatigue, and affect their relationships. You know, how much, they, how much alcohol or substances they're using. And this can be really dangerous. And, and yet there's a stigma around mental health. And of course, I would imagine physicians would feel that even more. How can can I, yeah. as a physician, be unwell, especially That's right. mentally? That's right. The, I think some of the moving forward, the, the opportunities lie in changing culture, and culture is predicated by the leadership, about speaking openly about these things, leaders showing their own vulnerability, talking about their stories of, of where they've you know, not been healthy. As you said, there's, there's, a, there's rampant addiction within our communities, and our physicians are not invulnerable to that. So much of addiction is, is about treating pain, and pain, whether it's physical or emotional, it still affects us in the same areas of the brain. And so whether you treat your, your pain with work addiction, like many physicians do, or with alcohol, like many physicians do, you know, it's, 
it, it all comes down to that that same thing that they need connection. They need someone to create space for them where where they can connect and and talk about these issues. And once they can talk about it, they can start those journeys towards getting better. Absolutely. But we do need to have some systems. Yeah, we need to have some systems that that are prepared to accept them and to to hold kind of to hold hands and to be present with these physicians who who have a very difficult time saying you know, I'm not well. I need help. Exactly. To hold space for them. You know, um, I think, I hope this survey yields a Canadian conference on the health of physicians. Dr. Lawrence Yang of Surrey Memorial Hospital, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Bye-bye. I am Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I am joined by the sex doctor on Twitter, Dr. Sarah Murray. She is the author of the upcoming book, Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships. She has a PhD in human sexuality, and she is a relationship counselor in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Thank you for joining me tonight on the program, Dr. Murray. Thank you so much for having me. So we don't often talk about low sexual desire in men because we we think that all men want to sex and men have larger than life libidos and that they want sex all the time. But that's not necessarily the case from your research. Not at all. Um, It's an incredibly narrow stereotype. It certainly applies to some people, but it is not at all um, the norm. Um, There is a lot more complex emotional nuanced pieces of men's sexual desire um, that I see in my clinical practice and I've certainly seen throughout my research. And it can be related to medications and medical conditions and pressure at work and all that sort of thing. But there's something else that we don't talk about. And that is that men's low sexual desire can develop as a result of sexual rejection from their partners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's actually a really common um, pattern that I um, men in my research have talked to me about, and I, I see in the clinical setting quite often. Um, and basically what it is, um, is, you know, men and women are raised in these very different ways in terms of how they interact sexually. So um, men are often taught to be the pursuer, the one that chases, the one that initiates sex. And women are the ones who more often have learned to be the gatekeeper, so the one who says yes or no. So in a lot of heterosexual relationships, and what happens is that the man usually initiates sex. He says, hey, are you in the mood? Maybe he makes a kiss, like some kind of advance. The woman says yes or no. In situations where the woman says no, and then no, and then no again, um, what happens is that, you know, it really takes a toll on, on men's self-esteem. It takes a toll on the relationship and it takes a toll on their sexual desire. Um, One of the most common patterns I see is that men who show up in my office with low sexual desire or when the woman's saying, hey, he doesn't initiate anymore, he's never in the mood, what's going on? Usually if we kind of look back in time, the pattern that developed was that he used to have an interest, he used to initiate, but he was told no so many times that he's just started to kind of put up some walls, put up some barriers and not feel interested anymore. Um, It was just kind of almost adaptive, like there's no chance that she's in the mood, so I'm gonna kind of reduce my own sexual interest as well. and so, you know, that's not in any way to say that women should be saying yes to sex they don't want to have, and it's not to put the blame on the woman. Um, it's just that it's a really common pattern that I, I find kind of can help explain why some men experience a lower sexual interest 
um, later on in a relationship. It makes a lot of sense. I see a lot of patients in my clinical practice as well, and there'll be, you know, two, three, five years, no sex whatsoever. And, you Mm -hmm. know, it'll be this arm crossing. The woman will, you know, sit there, arms crossed. I I don't want to have sex. I can't tell you why. I just don't want to. And, you know, the man will say, you know, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to um, have an affair. I'm not going to cheat on you. But those are actually real risks. And do you find the men that have low sexual desire as a result of having repeated rejection, do they have developed sexual desire for somebody outside of the relationship or is it more an effect on their mood and their self-esteem and their libido is is dropped and it's in their boots and never to return without big changes Um, or therapy? (laughs) Right, right. Um, You know, in my experience, it's more the latter. Um, It's not to say the first doesn't exist or isn't a threat or a concern, as you mentioned. Um, but in my practice, I'm usually seeing the the individual or the couple who's still trying to make their marriage or their relationship work, and they are um, trying to figure out what they can do about it. So that it, it's not that it's never happened. I mean, people do look elsewhere if they're not feeling desired, if they're not feeling wanted, if they're not getting their sexual needs met. Um, you know, we know that it happens that people tend to look outside the relationship or be more receptive to attention that happens outside of their relationship. Um, but in my, my experience... Um, I, I kind of see it as more of that, you know, more of that depression, more of that pulling away, that emotional disconnect um, in the marriage that's starting to take more of a toll. Because this is, we expect uh, to get married and then have fabulous sex for the rest of our lives. And that's not the reality. But in part, that's the expectation because nobody talks about that either. They talk about the wedding uh-huh. and the, the gowns and the bridesmaids and, you know, uh, the dinner, sit down, buffet, uh, the $60,000 price tag. Uh, but really, in terms of the um, the sexual chemistry, the uh, advice from a sister, a mother, it's it's really still taboo in this incredibly sexualized world in which we live. And so I think that contributes to the stigma and the shame around, hey, I'm not having sex in my marriage when somebody realizes that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really struggle to talk about um, what sex looks like in longer term relationships still. Um, and I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that we think it should be effortful or effortless. We kind of consider at the earlier stages of a relationship that, you know, sex just happened. It was authentic. We just kind of fell into bed. Um, we didn't really have to try. And so once we have to start trying and making an effort and prioritizing it because of all these other competing things, you know, whether that's, you know, a mortgage or kids or pets and jobs and all that kind of stuff, we have to prioritize our sex life if we want it to, you know, to thrive, if we want to continue to feel that passion. And I think a lot of people struggle with putting effort into their sex life because it feels like even doing so makes it feel like there's a problem that has to be dealt with, which isn't so sexy for a lot of people. Interesting. Um, but we do know that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Interesting. I know. That's all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, but we do know that um, even at the beginning stages, you know, when you're dating, I mean, we, we put a lot of effort into how we look. We think about, you know, kind of what we're going to talk about. We're putting our best you know, face forward, where you go on a, you know, out for dinner, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that we actually did that made sex even effortful at that time. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it, I totally agree. It just felt natural, but um, yeah. So to kind of make sure that sex takes a priority, that you're still talking about it in a long-term relationship, that you're still curiously wondering about yourself and your partner is so crucial to keep that passion alive. Right. You mentioned something about how, you know, we used to get dressed and, you know, wonder how 
we looked and we wanted to look our best. And, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of brides lose weight. So body image is a big issue for women. How about for men? Do men lose sexual desire because they don't feel great about their body? Yeah, I, you know, I do see that. Um, and again, I, in our, our culture is still so, um, you know, much more focused on women's bodies being objectified. And, you know, there's so much more, you know, makeup and hair and all of that stuff. Um, but absolutely, um, you know, when, when anyone puts on weight, you know, it just affects our mood, it affects our interest in, in everything, like how we dress, how we carry ourselves, and all of that's going to play a role in terms of how um, sexually desirable we feel or how interested we are in sex ourselves. Um, and so absolutely, I've, I've heard men, um, you know, in their 40s and 50s kind of talk about, um, you know, I'm not as in shape as I was in my teens and 20s and wondering if that might have kind of, um, if that's playing a role in their sexual interest. And they um, can so be. I absolutely see that. Yeah, they, they can get into shape, you know, get off the couch, <laughs> change the diet. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This Unless is... there's a serious medical, um, you know, problem that's keeping you like bedridden. Um, yeah, you can get up and move or kind of consider it's okay for men to put um, effort into their looks. I mean, I think there was a a period of time where we were kind of, you know, using that metrosexual term as if it was a bad thing to care about your appearance. Um, You know, wearing nice shirts, caring about your, um, you know, manscaping and whatnot. Um, It's it's great to take pride in your physical appearance and most women appreciate it. (laughs) I agree with you. I agree with you. I had a letter recently from a listener and and he said that a bunch of guys were hanging around talking about their sexless marriages and, you know, and some of them did end up with low libido. And and so in order to deal with that, instead of uh, going outside of the marriage or cheating, they went to high performance sports. They went to adrenaline rushing type Types of activity. Um, do you find mm-hmm. uh, men do that, and, and is that where they get their excitement and their pleasure? Um, it, uh, it that steps a little bit outside of my um, particular research, but now that you're saying it, it is definitely one of those uh, you know correlation versus causation. Um, but now that you're saying it, I'm like, yes, there. I, I do kind of notice that a lot of men kind of have picked up an extra sport or or kind of reconnected. Um, you know, with their gym membership or what have you, if if sex is kind of, um, you know, not as frequent that they are looking to kind of experience those endorphins and, and um, you know, that excitement or, you know, increase in arousal in other areas. Exactly. And that's safer than some of the social media sites that they could be going to. It's never been so easy to cheat, never been so easy to get caught either. Dr. Sarah Murray, the sex doctor, author of the, the upcoming book, Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men's Sex and Relationships. Thank you so so much, Dr. Murray. Great information. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. It's always my pleasure to host this program for you live every Sunday night. And it's my honor right now to have with me Dr. Jess. She is a Toronto-based sexologist, PhD, author, and TV personality. And she delivered a phenomenal TEDx talk on monogamish. Monogamy gets a bad rap these days. People are wondering, are we cut out for monogamy? And what about that consensual non-monogamy? That's getting a little attention too. And that's why I decided to invite Dr. Jess to the program to talk about consensual non-monogamy. How popular is it? What's it like? Can you get into trouble with it? Good evening, Dr. Jess. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I'm excited to talk about this subject, which is sure to excite a lot of people, especially those people who might be a little bit bored 
having sex with the same person over and over and over again, decade after decade, if they're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's a good way to look at it. Yes. So what is consensual non-monogamy? Well, consensual non-monogamy refers to relationships in which you are not monogamous, but you all parties agree and have informed consent. So it's not the same as cheating because cheating is generally about deception or lack of consent, whereas consensual non-monogamy, the key word is consensual. So does this include things like polyamory, swinging, and other forms of open relationships? Yes, that's right. So consensual non-monogamy is generally an umbrella term. It's a term we use in research. And so you might be a swinger. So somebody who, for example, has sex with other people or changes partners with another couple. Swinging, of course, means different things as well. So that's one type of consensual non-monogamy. You might be polyamorous, where you have multiple loving and potentially sexual relationships with more than one person, with the consent of all parties involved, and that would be a form of consensual non-monogamy. Now, even within polyamory, there are so many different ways you can arrange a polyamorous relationship. So you might, for example, have uh, you know three partners all together, and they all interact with one another. You might have a V format. So for example, I, I, let's just say I'm with my husband and I also have another partner and I am with my husband and the other partner, but my husband and the other partner don't interact. So we might call that a V. Uh, you know, there are different ways to arrange it. Some people are more wide open. Other people are obviously situational. Like all relationships, consensual monogamy requires a good degree of communication. And whether you are monogamous or as I say monogamish which is mostly monogamous but maybe with a little sprinkles on top (laughs) with consent or if you're wide you know if you have a consensually non-monogamous relationship you need to talk about what your expectations of monogamy are because we do have data suggesting that you know there are struggles with monogamy so the data suggests that 24% of people admit that they've cheated, cheated on their partner. Is I it, would say that the real number is a little bit higher. I, I don't know say, if that's your is, experience. It, absolutely. Is that men? Because uh, I thought men admitted to cheating a little bit more, but it's it's an area where women are gaining some gender equality because according to women <laughs> report, 19% of cheating, which I'm delighted to hear. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> right, so, you go, girls. Yeah, women are... <laughs> Women are closing the cheating gap more quickly than we're, we're closing the orgasm gap. And, uh, yeah, so men were more likely to admit to it. They still are, but that difference between genders is narrowing. Um, and, unfortunately, most of our data comes from heterosexual couples. So we're going to see, hopefully, you know, in upcoming years, we'll see research that includes a broader range of people, not just white university students, exactly. <laughs> which is usually where the data is coming from. I know. It's so, so unfortunate, really, because when you talk to pe- real people in real time, real world data, you get an entirely different picture. So talk, getting back to that V formation of, um, mm-hmm. of uh, consensual non-monogamy or CNM, um, do they, the two men, say, for example, there's a woman and she has a husband and a boyfriend, um, those two men, do they ever, they know about each other, but they don't actually communicate. Is that the deal? Is that how that works? Well, they might communicate. There's just no one way or right way to do this. And even people will disagree with, with my terminology. There's no universal terminology. 
So, for example, I might have a V where my, um, I'm going to use you know, my a husband and a boyfriend, do interact. We all, you know, go out for dinner. Um, I might have a V in which my husband and my boyfriend, I guess maybe they would, wouldn't necessarily call it a V, but they could be sexually involved as well. So every situation is different. All relationships are evolving. And so what you will find in consensually non-monogamous relationships generally is open communication with greater specificity. So in monogamy, monogamy, our communication tends to be what we refer to as shorthand. We make a lot of assumptions about what monogamy means. But monogamy varies from person to person and culture to culture. You know, I remember being in high school and dancing and winding and grinding at a high school dance, and I'm Jamaican. My, my, back, my mother's from Jamaica, and so winding and grinding is just something you do. It's not really sexual. Mm-hmm. But I remember people going and getting my boyfriend to talk about what I was doing. And so our definitions of monogamy are drawn not only from personal experiences, but also from cultural expectations. Like this was back in the 90s. Now that Jamaican dance hall has hit, you know, the world, you might see more acceptance of the behavior that I was engaging in when I was younger today, 25 years, 20 years later. So, yes, of course, hopefully he thought that she's just getting ready for her world famous career. That's all. (laughs) Right? <laughs> exactly. If only I was a dance hall star. <laughs> <laughs> better. You're better than that. Um, so is there a stigma associated with consensual non-monogamy? Is this something people typically tell their friends and families? Uh, so I think it often depends on privilege. So some people have more options to share their relationship arrangements than others. So, for example, I know people who have been in CNM relationships who have been denied custody of children, who cannot adopt. So this affects, you know, some of the biggest decisions and areas of our lives. So some people are able to come out. Other people have jobs where their job could be at risk. So, you know, I, I see, I believe that in Canada you might be more protected. But I know, for example, some swingers in the States who have lost their jobs, who have been fired from their jobs when people find out that they're swingers. I know a, a gentleman who is a, who is a, a, a fire chief, in the States and he's a swinger and he said, you know, it's interesting because if my buddies found out I was a swinger, I would be a pariah. I might even lose my job, but they all cheat on their wives and that's okay. I am a weirdo for not cheating on my wife, but because we do this consensually, it would be more deeply judged. So yes, there's a lot of stigma. Uh, Although I will say the data suggests that the incidence of consensual non-monogamy or at least the reported incidence, is increasing. So one in five daters, for example, in the United States, in one study, reported they tried CNM at some point in time. Right. And um, does it mean if somebody is in a monogamous relationship and wants to endeavor to go into a CNM relationship, does it mean that they're less satisfied uh, in the relationship? Is that, what is is the purpose for uh, people seeking um, consensual non-monogamy, and then well, and then what are the risks? I guess. Right. Yeah. So first and foremost, the data in terms of relationship satisfaction um, is similar between consensual non-monogamy and monogamy. I believe that there's some data indicating that jealousy is actually lower in consensually non-monogamous relationships because you're openly talking about more vulnerable emotions. 
If you're interested in doing this, it doesn't necessarily mean that something is awry in your relationship. I don't think most people jump from, you know, 20 years of monogamy to having a quick conversation and becoming consensually non-monogamous. I talk about this concept of monogamish, meaning that, for example, maybe you just open up a little bit. You talk about other people. You fantasize about other people. Maybe you even flirt with other people with their consent as well, not playing games with people. Maybe, you know, on your anniversary, you go to a burlesque show or a boylesque show. You go to a sex club and you have... Right. What what about the the woman who knows that her husband is cheating, and ex, but she doesn't want to give up her life, and she's essentially you know her silence is means she's being complicit or, or the other way around, um, you know is that considered an open relationship, theoretically? So I guess it could be an open relationship. I don't know that I'd call it a consensually non monogamous relationship because resigning yourself to accept may not be the same is not the same mm-hmm. as enthusiastic consent because any anything you do with your partner whether it's monogamy consensual non-monogamy or somewhere in the gray area in between you don't want to pressure them you don't want to convince them you want to be both on board to make this work you both want to believe that this is going to enhance your relationship you ask why people do it oftentimes it's for the novelty for the passion for the excitement if you're looking at polyamory it's for the Increase in social supports. You have multiple people, multiple people to turn to. You know, I have I have friends who are polyamorous who raise kids with multiple partners, and there are obviously many benefits to having multiple adults with positive influence on young people's lives. So everybody's motivation is different. Uh, you know, you asked about some of the risks. There's a risk with every relationship, right? We've got a divorce rate that's around 41%. We've got this infidelity reported rate of 24%, and so. People will say, oh, well, you know, I I know somebody who had an open relationship and they ended up divorced, to which I would reply, hey, I know someone who had a monogamous relationship and they ended up divorced, and also they weren't monogamous to begin with. Exactly. (laughs) You know, relationships are tough. I don't believe that there is a one-size-fits-all approach. I I believe there is space for successful monogamy. I believe that there is space for consensual non-monogamy to be successful, and I think it varies from person to person. If this is something that doesn't appeal to you, if this is something that you you feel judgmental of, it's okay for you not to embrace it. But I do encourage you to kind of look within yourself as to why you're judging other people. Because if it works for them imperfectly, because every relationship is imperfect, why do you care? What is it about this that threatens you? And I, I have to do something this all that, time. Yes, that threatens them. I wish we had more time, but we don't. Dr. Dr. Jess, a Toronto-based sexologist, uh, television personality, great TEDx talk. Check it out, monogamish. And how can people get in touch with you, Dr. Jess? Uh, you can find me at happiercouples.com or sex with Dr. Jess on social media. Thank you so much. Always an honor to have you. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.